The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Since before time, God has existed in perfect communion as a holy trinity. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the living word, was with God in the beginning, in that perfect communion, forever at home in the glory and beauty of God. But then he left his perfect home and made his dwelling among us. He became flesh, giving away everything and making himself nothing. A human baby born into humble circumstances and destined for the shame of the cross. He did this by choice, in obedience to his father, to rescue a wayward humanity that had become lost in sin. He did this to save us by bearing our sin on the cross. He did this to conquer death on our behalf. For that, he left his perfect and glorious home, displaced and despised because of the compassion of God. This morning, we remember the many in our own world who are without a home, displaced and despised in their own way. We remember the many homeless people who live within mere miles of this very place. We remember the vast numbers in this world who currently live as refugees, separated from their homes, from all they have ever known. And we remember that the Christ who left his home to save us also left his home to save them. This morning, we light the first Advent candle in recognition of the hurting and homeless in our world. If we have truly experienced the light of the world, Jesus Christ, then let us honor him by intentionally remembering And even more than that, reaching out to those who are without a home. May the words of Jesus be true of us. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. Thanks, that was a bit better. So I have a little bit of uh, audience participation I need from you today. A very simple question, very non-threatening. How many of you have heard of Charlie Brown? Raise your hand. All right, hands down. How many of you have gone to see the new movie, Charlie Brown? Shame on you for not. It's great. You've got to go see it. It's fun. When I think of Charlie Brown, probably one of the first images that comes to my mind is uh, Lucy holding her football and uh, saying, hey, Charlie, you know, you can trust me. And she pulls it away on the floor, right? Every time uh, it happens that uh, he falls on his face and he gets up again. And praise the Lord for that. Hey, guys, can I have the back screen on, please? And uh, so today, I just want to say David's at a place where it's not funny at all, but he's been on the back. He's fallen down so many times again and again. And we've been seeing that as we've been going through 2 Samuel. This king, this man after God's own heart, has fallen. Sometimes because it feels like someone's tripped him. Sometimes because of his own sin. And uh, today, as we get into chapter 19 of, uh, of 2 Samuel, we see David at his lowest spot. Probably the lowest spot that he's at in his life. He's in a city called Maenaim, and uh, 
He's hearing the voices of his people cheering as they say, Absalom's dead, and they know now that their king, David, can finally be back on his throne. And he hears people rejoicing, and I, the Bible just says that he got by himself, he covered his face, more or less saying he got into isolation, and he just said, Oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom, if only I could have died in your place. While he hears the joy of his nation, he's got the brokenness of his heart. And he feels responsible for his son. He knows his son has become his enemy. And worse than that, he knows that his son was also, had become an enemy of God. And that breaks his heart. He doesn't know what to do with himself. He has no energy left. He can't take a next step. He's just devastated as any loving father would be a man named Joab comes in and he's been David's commander throughout almost all of his life and he comes in and he speaks words that need to be spoken he speaks words of truth I have a feeling they weren't really spoken in love but he speaks word of truth because he tells David he's got a role to do he says David David, you can't be like this. David, these people have just sacrificed much to make sure that your kingdom can still be established. David, right now, you are loving those who hate you, and it looks like you hate those who love you. And you're going to lose it all if you don't get up and go see those people. David, get up. Don't you dare give up, David, is what he'd be saying. And David hears it, and he gets up, and he goes to the gate. And it kind of says, that's for the people to know, okay, I'm back. I'll be the king. I don't know how much his heart was in it at that point. He just kind of did it because he, he, he got some marching orders. But the Bible tells us in Proverbs uh, 24, verse 18, that a righteous man falls seven times, but he always rises again. And this time, you know what? However that those words came across, if they weren't loving, the Lord still used those words to get David up and to help David realize that as hard as it was for him to lose his son and as devastating as that was, he still needed to remember that he was a king of a nation that God had just said, you can be back on your throne. And through your kingdom, David, your son died, but there's another son, there's another descendant who's coming, and he's going to bring salvation for the whole world. You can't forget that, David. You have to be grateful, too. So David gets up, and he goes to the, he goes to the gate, which is a symbol of him saying, again, I'm ready, I'm ready to take on my responsibility. So before we get specifically into our chapter for today, I just want to ask you this question. Do you tend to identify yourself primarily by your fallings or by God's faithfulness? When you fall, do you just kind of get stuck there? And do you just say, man. Or do you remember God's faithfulness and get up by the help of the Holy Spirit and move forward? If you haven't struggled too much with fallings, how about your successes? Do you measure yourself by your successes or do you measure yourself by God's faithfulness? 
the only measure that's worthwhile is God's faithfulness. And that's what we need to remember as we walk in obedience with him, as, at least as we desire to. Today, the, the message of the sermon is the, the king returns to Jerusalem, and it's a dramatic lesson on how to treat others. And I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles right now to 2 Samuel chapter 19. We're going to be reading, reading verses uh, 15 to 23. But as you get your Bibles open, I uh, just want to give you a little bit of a context for the passage that we're reading today. Uh, this is a picture of a portion of the Holy Lands. And uh, you can see here on this arrow, this is a time where the green arrow here is when Absalom is saying, I'm, I'm taking over. I'm rebelling. He goes to Jerusalem and David says, I got to flee. David crosses the Jordan and then he goes all the way up north to a place called Mahanaim. And that's where the context of what we're going to read takes place. So David's living up there. And uh, while he's living up there, that's where he hears the, the, the crowd starting to say, bring back the king, bring back the king. Four times, it says, bring back the king. That's the theme of chapter 19. He hears that. And he hear, he's hearing it from the people of Israel. The ten tribes of Israel are all saying, let's bring back the king. They say, you know what? We anointed Absalom to be our king. That didn't work out. Let's get our king back. How fickle is that? Right? We, we, we're, we, got, we, we hired someone. We got someone to be our leader. Ah, he wasn't good. David, you can be our king again. That's sort of, I think, how David's interpreting what he's hearing. And David uh, sends two priests down all the way back to, to the people of Judah and he says to them, hey guys, Israel's talking about me. They're talking about making me king and you're not stepping up to bat. I'm your brother. Why aren't you guys inviting me back? So he tells the priest to go tell him, tell those guys it's time for me to be back on the throne there. And then he also says, there's something else I want you to tell. There's a guy there, Amesha. I want you to talk with him and I want you to tell him something very, very important. So I want to tell you first of all who Amesha is. Here we've got King David. He's the, the star of the show in this here. Now he's got, he's got eight wives and 19 sons, right? He has concubines and other, other children yet. But in this timeline, first of all, we see that through his half-sister Zeruiah, that's where Joab comes. So that's the guy who just rebuked David, said, get up. That's the guy who we've read a lot about in 2 Samuel. So Joab is David's nephew. Amesha is also his nephew. Okay, but he sided with Absalom, and Absalom made him his commander-in-chief for the army, right? So he's a rebel. David tells the two priests, you go back to the men of Judah, and you tell Amesha these words. You tell them this, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if from now on you are not the commander of my army in place of, of Joab. Big shift. So the guy who's probably most people would say would be responsible now for David's success to get back on the throne. David's demoting him, saying, I'm putting you in charge. It's a little bit confusing, except for this part. First of all, David has a bit of animosity, I think, towards Joab for some of the things he's done. He killed his son. He's killed other sons. He hasn't obeyed him. He's a man who does what's right in his own eyes. He's a man who's often very successful, but not necessarily a good man of character. And then he's saying here, hey guys, I know there's a whole bunch of you who rebelled against me. I know a bunch of you said you didn't want to be king, and now I'm coming back. Well, I want to tell you something. There's a general uh, amnesty for everybody. 
I'm forgiving everybody. We're all on the same page. We're going to get united. And to show you that I mean business, Amisha's going to be in charge. Tell them that. The Bible tells us that that is what drew the men of Judah. They became one heart together. And they said, David, return. Okay, so that's the context. Now remember this. Everything you read from this point on is a man who's got a devastated, broken heart. He doesn't know what to do next with his life. His life has fallen apart. 2 Samuel 12, verse 10 tells us that Nathan said, David, the sword is never going to leave your family. David knows that his sin with Bathsheba is a major cause of everything that's falling apart in his life and that it won't change. It's going to be hard going. And he lost his son. So when we read these, read these words of David with mercy too. I don't know how I'd live if I was in his shoes. David was a man after God's own heart and even in his brokenness, especially in his brokenness, we get a a taste of how God cares for us because we are his sons too that could be dead apart from him. Jesus died for us. David said, if only I could have died for Absalom. And Jesus did die for us so that we could be restored into relationship with him. So let's uh, open your Bibles. Please stand with me and we will read 2 Samuel 19, verses 15 to 13. Then the king returned and went as far as the Jordan. Now the men of Judah had come to Gilgal and to go out and meet the king and bring him across the Jordan. Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Behurim, hurried down with the men of Judah to meet King David. With him were a thousand Benjamites, along with Ziba, the steward of Saul's household, and his 15 sons and 20 servants. They rushed to the Jordan where the king was. They crossed at the ford to take the king's household over and to do whatever he wished. When Shimei, son of Girah, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the king and said to him, May the Lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember what your servant did wrong on that day my lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind. For I know, for I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But today I have come here as the first of the whole house of Joseph to come down and meet my lord the king. Then Abishai, son of Zariah, said, Shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? He cursed the Lord's anointed. David replied, What do you and I have in common, you sons of Zariah? This day you have become my adversaries. Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Do I not know that today I am king over Israel? So the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king promised him on oath. Please be seated. So let's give you a little bit of a context here for who this man Shimei is. We've been introduced to him earlier, and uh, the first time we hear of him is in 2 Samuel 16. Uh, David is fleeing for his life, and as he's fleeing, Shimei comes up and starts hucking stones at him and his soldiers. He actually gets stones, starts hucking them, and starts saying, You deserve this, David! You, you, you're getting exactly what God has in store for you because you've caused bloodshed all throughout the kingdom. You deserve this. He prophesied that and he cursed David. The words that we read are this, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. You have come to ruin because you are a man 
of blood. That's David's experience with Shimei. The only other time scripture mentions seeing him that I'm aware of. And now he sees this guy come and bow before him. And the Bible says twice, it says he, Shimei rushed to the river. He hurried to the river. I get the impression that Shimei is, like, he's scared. He knows that <coughs> he should be done because he wasn't a good boy and he deserves to be punished. And so he's doing what's wise and saying, Lord, like, forgive me. I was wrong. I don't mean to, you know, I, I shouldn't have done it. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. And uh, he says these words, May my Lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong. May the king put it out of his mind. So in my mind, I think, man, this guy, he's just blowing smoke. Man, just, you know, show him no mercy because he's just, right? And God in his grace slows me down and says, Doug, whenever you think critically of someone in scripture, you got to start examining yourself because there's probably something for you to learn there. And I start thinking, so this isn't verses in the Bible. I just kind of start thinking about what was Shimei's experience of David before. And I don't know. I know that David, uh, Shimei didn't live in a time where there was uh, tweets about what's happening or you could watch CNN. He didn't really have probably any firsthand contact with King David so that he knew firsthand what's up. So he hears about his king who's supposed to represent God, right? King of the nation, God's anointed. He hears that this king sleeps with a woman named Bathsheba. He hears that this king then kills that woman's husband, who was one of his 30 mighty men. And that the baby born from that sin also paid a price and died. I don't know if I was Shimei and I heard those kind of things, what kind of thoughts I'd be making about the king. I don't know about you, but sometimes I make judgments of people where I don't know the whole story. I hear little bits and pieces, maybe from conversations or maybe something on the news, and, and I don't know. Maybe in my thought I've said, yeah, they're just getting what they deserve, what God wants. I don't know. So the question I have to ask myself as I spend time in this is, Doug, when have you acted like Shimei? When, when have you acted in a way where you spoke and it wasn't the word of God? Shimei didn't speak prophecy. He spoke lies and he cursed. Doug, when has your mouth done something in my name that wasn't reflective of what I thought? Well, probably that's happened more often than I know. Forgive me, Father, for that. So the picture, though, is David is walking with his procession to the Jordan, and they're going to cross over. They've got all these people. And then Abishai, his another kind of right-hand man, says, David, kill him. He deserves to die. There's probably part of David that agrees, right? But he says, you are an enemy of mine. You and your brother Joab. Today, you two, my two nephews, you have become my adversaries. And then he says this. He says, should anyone be put in death in Israel today? Do I not know that today I am king over Israel? And I think this is the crux of chapter 9. Do I not know that I am king? I'm not sure, but I think in the beginning when Joab said, you better get to the gate, David. David kind of might have whimpered to get there. 
And now as he's walking, he's realizing, no, no, I am the king. And I've got a responsibility. And my God shows mercy and forgiveness. And that's what I'm going to do in this. Because, man, have I received God's mercy. Have I received God's forgiveness. So Shimei, I don't think he's saying, hey, let's become best friends. I just think he says, you're not going to die for what you did. And he makes an oath about that. So here's a question for you. Who is your Shimei? Do you have someone in your life who has maybe spoken things about you that they shouldn't have, maybe even done it in the name of God? Is there someone in your life like that that you have to deal with? And the question next would be, oops, how have you shown mercy and forgiveness to them? Hard things to do, but required of us if we're going to walk faithfully with the Lord. In the next scene, we meet a man named Mephibosheth and another man named Ziba. And here, when we talk about good relationships, David needed to make a clear and decisive decision because something wasn't right in what he was hearing. Two stories weren't meshing together. We don't know much about Ziba, except now it tells us that he's journeying with Shimei. So it almost sounds like they might at least know each other. Maybe they're friends. The first time we hear of Ziba is when we have the story of King David showing mercy to Mephibosheth. If you remember, Mephibosheth is Saul, uh, Jonathan's son. So David and Jonathan, best of buds. David promising Jonathan that when I become king, your family's okay. Jonathan's family, most of them die in battle, but there's Mephibosheth who's still alive because he's lame in his legs. He didn't go out to battle. And David showed mercy to him. He said, why don't you sit at my table? I'm going to treat you as one of my own. Okay? So Mephibosheth has been an object of David's mercy, and I think David has been a recipient of Mephibosheth's gratitude for most of the story that we could imagine. And Ziba is Mephibosheth's servant. So we're told that when David is fleeing away from Absalom, that Ziba meets David with a whole bunch of supplies and says, I want to help you out. You deserve this. And David says, well, okay, but why is Mephibosheth not here? And he says, oh, well, Mephibosheth decided that he wanted to stay over there. He kind of likes the new power coming to town. He wants to stay with him. David doesn't know what to do with that, right? Really? Can you imagine if you heard that about someone you loved and cared for, that you sacrificed, that you took in to be your own? You just deserted me? So he looks at Ziba and he says, Ziba, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. Everything. Who cares about Mephibosheth? It's all yours. So that's what we know about Ziba so far in 2 Samuel. Now, Mephibosheth comes onto the scene and it says that he's at the river. He's by the Jordan now as well. And remember, he's lame, right? He, he's not able to walk around too easily. It says that his feet are uncared for, his mustache has been untrimmed, and his clothes have not been washed since the day that David left. Not a well-groomed individual. And what it shows, though, is that he's been deeply grieving ever since David fled. And David sees this, and it doesn't quite compute to what he had been told by Ziba. Because Ziba said that Mephibosheth was kind of betraying him. And Mephibosheth, he, so he goes, he, this doesn't compute. Just seeing you makes me, you don't even have to say a word. You haven't, 
look at you. You haven't taken care of yourself for as long as I've been gone. Obviously, you've been faithful to me. So he decides, he goes right up to Mephibosheth, and he says, what's up? Like, why, why didn't you come with me? And Mephibosheth says, well, David, like, you know, I'm, I'm lame. It's not that easy to get around. And I was waiting for donkey to be saddled, and then I was going to go with you. But Ziba, my servant, he betrayed me, and then he slandered me against you. And I think David just had a, oh, see, he didn't betray me. And it, 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 this is the proverb that comes to mind for me right away is this one. It's Proverbs 18, verse 17. The first to present his case seems right till another comes forward and questions him. David heard Ziba before and he just made an impulsive decision. He didn't really think too much about, hey, Mephibosheth, he's always been loyal. I know he loves me. He just went, forget you and move on. And now when he hears the other side, he goes, oh, Lord, forgive me. I made a big mistake. And now he's in a little bit of a conundrum because he as king has promised uh, Ziba everything. So now he says to them, he says, okay, you don't need to say anything more. Um, you have to just divide it up between you. I don't, know if, I don't know if it's just not time that he didn't have to talk it through, but he, he said that's his solution. It's firm, it's decisive, split it up, and that's how we're going to go from there. I think we get a glimpse into Mephibosheth's heart when he says this, because I think he says it with all sincerity. He says, let, let Ziba take everything now that my lord the king has arrived home safely. Mephibosheth say, I've never really cared so much about the material stuff. I've just been astounded by your love and your grace towards me. I'm just so happy that you're back. I love you, David. I'm so glad you're home. I don't care about the rest. What a beautiful, beautiful reflection of friendship. The verse that comes to mind for me when I think of this, and that's if I'm correct in how I'm interpreting this, is Philippians 2, verses 3 to 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I, I think that when David and Mephibosheth's relationship was working well, this is what we see evidenced. And it's beautiful. And so the question I have for you right now is, who is someone that you have cared for, who you think of as your Mephibosheth? Is there someone in your life, you have to remember that, that Mephibosheth for David could have easily been his son because this was Jonathan's son. So this is a person who's much younger than him and he cared for him. So do you have someone like that in your life? And if you don't, would you consider finding someone to be your Mephibosheth? And if you have had someone, you could ask yourself, how have they stayed loyal to you? And have you, God, have you given praise to God that you have someone like that in your life? Someone who loves you because you've also loved them with the love of Christ. That's hugely important. The next scenario that we see uh, introduces us to a, a man named Brazilii. And uh, the story here uh, really revolves around the idea of how important kindness is in friendship. Uh, you might ask the question, who is this Barzillai you speak of? The Bible tells us he's an 80-year-old man. He's very old for this day and age. 80-year-old man, he's very wealthy, and he has been a primary supporter of David while he's been gone in his rebellion uh, as, because of Absalom. And more or less, uh, it's clear that uh, Brazilii 
believes that David needs to be king, that he's God's anointed, and he's supported him in that role. And so in this scenario, in verses 31 to 39, we see David and Barzillai at the Jordan. They're about to cross over. And David says to Barzillai, he says, come with me. Come with me and live in Jerusalem. I want you to be in my royal courts, and I want to bless you. He loves this man. So now we're on the other end. Before Mephibosheth is way younger, Brasilia now is way older. He's looking at him and he goes, I love you. I want you to be with me. And Brasilia says, thank you, David, but you know what? At my age, I, I think the wisest thing for me to do is to stay in my home area because I want to die with my friends and my loved ones. I want to be put in the tomb of my ancestors. Brasilia was a lot more interested in having a, a, a dignified death than a dynamic life at this point. I, I can let go of that. He goes, but you know what? If you want to, you can take my son, uh, Chimham, take him and treat him as you'd like. And David says, I will do that. I'll take him with me. He'll be in my royal courts and I will treat him as you would treat him. And I will treat you however you desire to be treated. You know, words aren't there, but more, I love you, man. This is, you're, you're the best. I'm so thankful to God for you. An important lesson in this story is this. This old man, his, his money was not nearly important to David as was his presence. Sometimes it's easy to give money to things. It's a lot harder to give yourself to things or to yourself to people so that people know that you truly love them, that you're actually with them, that through the hard times and the pleasant times, you're there and you're going to cheer them on to be who God has called them to be. And that's what Brasilii gave to David. And it's a beautiful picture for us to remember. The verse that comes to mind as I think of their relationship is this. It's from Romans 12, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Uh, it's a gorgeous picture of what friendship's meant to be. No selfishness, no self-promotion, the idea that I want God's best for you and I'm going to help you as much as God allows me to to move up and to become more like Christ and to serve him as you're meant to. So a question for you here is who is someone who has cared for you that you think of as being your Brasilia? Has there been someone in your life who's older than you that you can kind of look to as a mentor and say, yeah, this person has seen Christ in my life and has called that out of me. They've shown me kindness and in that kindness I have been drawn to become more like Christ. And then I have to ask you, how have you shown your kindness back to them? Your gratitude for the, what they've done in your life. How have you expressed gratitude and shown kindness to them? I want to just remind you again in this scenario that for David these were not his peers. This was someone, Mephibosheth, 30 more years or younger, and Brasilii, 30 or more years potentially older. I don't know exactly how old, but there's, they're not his peers. When you look at the friendships you have, are you being well-rounded by inviting people of different ages into your life to be your friends? Because they all have different ways to speak Christ into your life, and you have different things that you need to speak into their life. It's so important that we do that. So the last segment of chapter 19... Uh, it's a story about how we need to guard against strife. And uh, it just shows us that there's still tensions. 
as far as the story goes now, David is coming back to be king. In some ways, the nation is united, but really it's one nation with 13 tribes who don't like each other very much. There's a lot of tension. There's still division. There's civil war going on in the house. And really, it's not until the whole nation of Israel, all the tribes get put into exile and they get freed again, do they become one nation under God where they're more uni unified together. And so now these two nations are warring and what happens is David actually crosses the Jordan. He crosses the Jordan going to Jerusalem with all the men of Judah and half the tribes of Israel. That's what the Bible tells us. He crosses over. And then it says, all the men of Israel came to David and said, why are you doing this? Half of us aren't here. This isn't right. You're reinstating yourself as king and a big chunk of us are missing. And uh, before David says anything, he says it doesn't say anything, the, guy, the men from Judah just pipe up and say, well, he's our family. He's like our brother. And uh, of course he's here. But just so you know, there's no favoritism. We're not doing anything extra. We're not getting any you know, side benefits from this. We're not doing anything wrong. And then the men of Israel say, what are you talking about? He's not just your brother. He's our king. And if, if that's the case, there's, there's 10 tribes here. We have more of a claim to David than you do. And we were also the ones who first started talking about bringing David back. If you remember, we talked about that. We were getting all excited about getting David back into the throne, right? And so there's this kind of argument and this tension going on. And... Uh, and it kind of highlights the fickleness of the crowd. If you want to go with the crowd, you're going to be like this all of your life. You're, you're just, your, your opinions are going to change. What you think is right and wrong is going to change. You, you need, we need someone who tells us this is the way it is and this is how you're to live. And that's God in his word through his Holy Spirit. Really fickle people without that. found a little cartoon that made me laugh and I want to share it with you. It... Uh, it's a picture of a king and his wife, the queen, strapped in a dungeon against the wall with the chains. And he looks at her and uh, lovingly says, Honey, the public sure is fickle, isn't it? <laughs> right? All of a sudden, like, hey, at one point we were on the throne and now we're in the dungeon and they've strapped us up. At least they let us keep our crowns. Isn't that nice? Aren't they fickle? Well, again, when we read scripture, we always have to let God do the work of bringing it home for us and saying, well, what does this mean towards me? Uh, and I have a question for us, and it's a good question, I think. And the question is this. When it comes to obeying our heavenly king, how often are you fickle and how often are you faithful? I have to ask myself, Doug, when you wake up in the morning, is your first thought surrendering to your king and asking him for his marching orders? Do I ask God, God, what do you want for my day? And do I seek him continually throughout the day to obey him? Or how often do I maybe start my day off right, but I realize, wow, it's supper time and I really haven't thought of God at all. I've just been, I've been doing good stuff. Nothing wrong with what I've been doing, but I sure haven't been thinking of God much today. Or how often does it happen that something comes up that I know I want to do in my sinfulness and God doesn't want me to do it, but I say, God, I might not say these words, but my actions say, God, just don't look. God, just 
go away for now. You can be my king when I want you to be my king. Right now, I want to be my king. Guys, that's a hard issue. I'm pretty sure we all face that. And God says, Doug, you need to be faithful. And the only way you can be faithful is if you learn to abide in me and walk in step with my Holy Spirit. Because if you just try to be obedient, you're going to fail. You're going to keep falling. But if you learn to abide in me and my word and you let my Holy Spirit change your heart, you won't be so fickle anymore. I tell you, I sure hope I'm less fickle in 10 years from now than I am today. We have to have that kind of mindset. We have to believe that God is a God who changes our hearts and not that we're just people who can change our actions. If that's where our faith is at, it's my life changing my actions to look like God wants it to look like, it's going to be a devastating wake-up call someday when God says, I really had no part to do in the changes in your life. You just did it yourself. So we have to ask ourselves that. And the good news is that God promises to continue the good work that he started in us. The good news is God says, Doug, I can change you. You don't have to strive so hard. All you have to do is be still and know that I am God. All you need to do is start doing what I told you. Abide in me and let me change you. And one last thing here as we come to a close together is that God doesn't look at us and just see individuals for the most part. He sees a body. He sees a bride. He looks at us, and we have to ask that question together. As a church, are we fickle or are we faithful? Why do we exist together? I sure hope day by day, year by year, we get a better sense of what it means to be faithful to God together and that has to in some way mean moving out into the world so that the world can know who Jesus is. That has to mean that we make room in our lives so people who don't know Christ yet can come to know us and get to know Christ because they see love among us. That involves us changing how we live our life. We can't live like everybody else lives their life. We have to make decisions that give us time to be with each other so love can grow. We have to make decisions that we abide in God continually so we get to know him and God changes our heart. And that's the greatest invitation that we can have. And so we either accept that invitation and enjoy the joy before us, or we say, God, no, I'm too busy. God, I don't think you understand my schedule. Have you looked at my phone? Have you looked at the things I have planned? So church, let's be a church that desires to be faithful together. Let's encourage each other to walk closely with God. Let's encourage each other in that walk. I want to be able to tell you how I see Christ in you. I also want to be able for you to tell me the ways that you say, Doug, this looks like a blockage in your life. We need those kind of relationships where we really help each other to speak truth and love. And then we'll see God unite his church so that they will look like God intends and not a bunch of divided tribes. So with that, please join me in prayer and the worship team will come forward. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you so much that you are sovereign over everything and uh, we're thankful that you're not a power-hungry God. You don't need anything. You are everything. And we're thankful that you have called us your own 
and that by your grace you have forgiven our sins as we've given ourselves to Christ and asked for your Holy Spirit to come and live in us. And so, Lord, we have hope because even though we fall so regularly, your word says that the righteous man will rise up and it's only the wicked that will stay down and perish. So, Lord, we thank you that you are God and we are not. And we thank you that you are God of this church. And we acknowledge that we want you to have your way in us. We thank you that we are already united in Christ together. We pray that day by day we experience that together. And we surrender ourselves to you in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We heard the children singing, Lamb of God, welcome to our world. And yet it's a pretty messy world we live in. And our lives are pretty messy too. And so much clutter. The other day I got up in the morning, got my newspaper out, I skim read it and throw out all the ads. And as I was throwing out the ads, I uh, thought I heard myself saying something and couldn't remember what it was, literally. And when I got them all ready to throw into the garbage, I sat there, what was I thinking? You know what it was? I have a few more things I would like in my little suite. We've had to give up a home. We've had to do other things. And my little boy said, I don't want what I want. sometimes to listen to our deepest wants and put them into the context of David's world and our world and God's world. Oh Lord, you who have come from the glory of heaven down to earth to die and take away our sins and forgive us. You who want to be the light of the world and the hope of every broken heart, we come to you today and ask that you meet our deepest need. Oh God, we need you.